It's Tuesday the 14th of January and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, Australia is burning. If you can leave, you must leave. Uh, we can't guarantee your safety in the east and the northeast of the state. That's why the state of disaster has been uh, declared. The new year began with that blunt warning from the Premier of the state of Victoria. And the threat is far from over. As Australia struggles through its worst bushfire season on record, is there a growing appetite for a change to the way its government approaches the mounting threat posed by climate change? Plus, our fashion team delivers a dispatch from the runways of Milan. It seems formal wear is set for a comeback. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. In November 2009, Australia's then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, arrived at the United Nations Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. The truth is the Copenhagen Conference produced the uh, Copenhagen Accord, which for the first time established a two-degree target, for the first time uh, required developed and developing countries to contribute to that target, and for the first time set up a global uh, system of measurement and verification. The popular centre-left leader had a headline-grabbing pledge. Australia, the world's largest exporter of coal, would reduce its carbon emissions by 25%. But by June the following year, there was a sudden change in Australia's political winds. I was elected by the Australian people uh, as Prime Minister of this country uh, to bring back a fair go for all Australians. And I have given my absolute best to do that. Kevin Rudd's time in the top job came to a sudden end when his deputy, Julia Gillard, successfully challenged him for the leadership. Australia's first female Prime Minister shared Rudd's progressive values, but her government's plan to introduce a tax on carbon proved politically toxic. Like Rudd before her, energy policies also played a role in Gillard's eventual demise, and it would also help end Malcolm Turnbull's tenure in 2018, leaving his former colleague, self-professed friend of the coal sector, Scott Morrison, to take the top job. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the Treasurer you. knows the rule on props. It's coal. It was dug up. Karen Middleton is the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper in Canberra. Karen, take us back to before the current bushfire season really kicked in. How would you describe the tone of the climate change debate in Australia? It's always been a volatile debate. This is a, an issue that has brought down a series of prime ministers in Australia over the past 10 years. This is the issue that has caused the greatest angst, I think, uh, in, in the political community. We have not been able to reach a consensus among our political leaders on how to address climate change. So this has always been a problem. Uh, we have a conservative government at the moment and the hard right conservatives in that government are very opposed to further action against climate change and very supportive of the fossil fuel industry. We just had a federal election in May uh, in which uh, the prospect of a new coal mine featured quite strongly and there was a very strong vote in the state of Queensland where that mine would be in favour of the coalition government. So it, the government didn't really have a lot of momentum or a lot of impetus to to do more on climate change. It has also adopted uh, a, an attitude that it doesn't need to do more than it's doing already. It's, it says it's meeting its Paris Agreement targets under the UN uh, arrangements, and, and, but it also wants to use what, what are called carryover credits. It's a sort of accounting trick, really. Because they had a very low target to reach 
when uh, the Kyoto Agreement was reached uh, more than two decades ago and they exceeded that target. They want to sort of carry over that success, meaning they could do a little bit less to meet their targets at the moment. That's been controversial and that's really come up again now in the wake of these terrible fires. Karen, Australia has always been particularly susceptible to fires. What's different this time around? We're in the middle of a really terrible drought, uh, so the landscape is incredibly dry, but we're also finding that temperatures are just much higher this year than they have been in recent years. We've seen the temperatures increasing in eastern Australia in the last few years with high winds and unpredictable changes of wind, and we've seen these fires flare up and just be impossible to control. The Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormick, gave an interview to ABC Radio in November. Now, he described those who are concerned over the link between the fires and climate change as... Well, they don't need the ravings of some pure, enlightened and woke capital city greenies at this time. Well, he was criticised by some people for his use of language at the time. And some people said, hang on a minute, there are people who vote Conservative who also have concern about climate change and that you shouldn't be taking this kind of strident language... So there's been a simmering concern, I think, in some parts of the Conservative constituency about the way this has been handled and talked about. I think the coalition, as I say, was emboldened after its election victory in May and perhaps went a bit far in in the stridency of its language uh, in favour of the fossil fuel industry, in favour of not doing anything extra on climate change. International media has been quite critical of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and his leadership during this crisis. How aware are Australians of how all of this looks from the outside? Australians are absolutely aware of the coverage overseas, acutely aware. They've long been aware of the coverage of Australia's attitude on climate change, and they're very aware of the coverage of these bushfires. They're very grateful for the attention, I think we all are, and grateful for the donations that are coming in from all over the world to support bushfire relief, both for for people, for fighting the fires and for the wildlife protection and assistance. But Australians are focused on home, I guess, primarily, and and the frustration is is very raw and very real. And I think a a larger number of people than previously are now focused on the bigger picture and what 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 has caused all of this, why it's become so bad and whether or not the government could have done more. The former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, wrote a piece for The Guardian Australia at the weekend. He said that the lies of the climate deniers have to be rejected. This is a time for truth-telling, not obfuscation and gaslighting. Now, a poll released on Sunday revealed a significant drop for Scott Morrison's Liberal Party. It's now trailing the opposition Labor Party, putting things, well, roughly where they were when Turnbull was replaced by Morrison. But will that be enough to prompt a rethink to Australia's approach to climate change, Karen? Well, Mr Morrison gave an interview, a big interview over the weekend here on Australia's public broadcast of the ABC, where he appeared to flag doing a little more on climate change. We're not sure exactly what that means. He's not planning to change the targets that Australia has set, but he may well be planning to take further action and perhaps ditch that idea of carryover credits, which would require Australia doing a little bit more to meet its existing targets. So there is a change in sentiment, a change in rhetoric, 
whether we see a change in action as yet is unclear. The Parliament doesn't resume sitting until February here, but it's very clear from the Prime Minister's demeanour and his level of activity announcements in the last couple of weeks that he's deeply concerned and well aware that the Australian people are less than happy with the way the government's handled this and that he will have a lot of work to do politically to regain his previous good standing uh, in the Australian constituency. He's, he doesn't face an election for some time, but this is dangerous territory for him politically uh, and he's going to have to change the way he approaches all of this. He's announced the possibility of a royal commission into the fires as well. So, you know, we, we are going to see a lot of focus on this in, in the next year, I think. Whether it was this season or last season, there was on the Sunday, Prime Minister Scott Morrison told the ABC's David Spears that his government could evolve its approach to tackling climate change, including its emission reduction targets. But he maintained that Australia cannot significantly impact the global crisis without reductions in other countries too. We could close down every single power generation facility in the country and those emissions would be taken up by China in about nine days. So I think we need to understand that global emissions don't have an accent. They come from many countries and we need to look at a global solution. Yes, don't which we need deals to with encourage the, other bigger emitters like China? And, and like that's the, why you should like meet India. and beat your target. Fashion's finest are strutting the streets of Milan this week. And according to our team over there, it seems to be quite a formal affair. Guys, are you ready to don sharp tailoring and polished leather lace-ups? This past week, the menswear crowds congregated in Florence and Milan for the autumn winter shows. And judging by the collections, it seems the pendulum has swung back to formal dressing after murmurings for several seasons that it was heading this way. Combine this with the recent comment from designer and streetwear guru Virgil Abloh that streetwear's definitely going to die in 2020, and you'd think it was a done deal. But whether a more buttoned-up look will really permeate mainstream urbanite dress codes the world over this year is less clear than at first glance. For starters, Italy is the epicentre of tailoring, so it's natural for Italian brands to embrace formal ensembles more so than, say, US brands. More importantly, while there was barely a trainer on the catwalks, there were still plenty of comfy-looking kicks in the front rows. The boom in sportswear and streetwear has made it acceptable to dress comfortably and casually nearly all the time. These movements have gone beyond being a fashion trend. They've become part of our lifestyles. We're now more active and favour gear that can take us from one occasion to the next without fuss. So if brands are to tempt consumers into dressing more sharply, they'll need to imbue tailored ensembles with sportswear's comfort and ease. Sportswear's relative affordability is another matter. In Milan, Salvatore Ferragamo did so convincingly with oversized coats and trousers whose roomy proportions recalled the relaxed silhouettes typical of streetwear. Meanwhile, Caruso, with a new creative director, presented looks that were well cut, but still fairly casual and colourful. And Traiano, a young Milanese brand, unveiled suits, jackets and pleated trousers that are made from a stretchy nylon that doesn't wrinkle and can be machine-washed, digitally printed with patterns that mimic walls and plaids. Sound futuristic? It just might be the way to get sportswear-obsessed shoppers back into two pieces. My thanks to our team soaking up all the fashion on display this week in Milan. Elsewhere on today's agenda... 
US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is hosting his counterparts from South Korea and Japan today. The tri-party talks are taking place in San Francisco and are expected to focus on the stalled North Korean denuclearization process, which has not progressed since Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un met in Vietnam almost a year ago. Colombian police say they foiled an attempt to assassinate Rodrigo Londonio Echeverri, better known as Timochenko, the former head of the now demobilized FARC rebels. The killing was reportedly ordered by two former FARC commanders, who regard his signing of a peace accord with the Colombian government in 2016 as a betrayal. And a record 2.74 million visitors poured into Japan's northern city of Sapporo for last year's snow festival. But this year is not looking so promising. It's due to start on the 31st of January, but there's already concern that with December snowfalls at less than half their 2018 levels, the lowest since records began in 1961, there might not be enough for the sculptors to work with. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Wednesday.